0: What's up, everybody? Hey, just wanted to give you a heads up. I record this episode with Lisa Pease with kind of a poor internet connection, so her voice sounds a bit robotic at times. It's a very interesting conversation. I went into it a bit skeptical, but I came out of the conversation with a bunch of questions about the mainstream narrative of the Robert F. Kennedy assassination. Uh, So anyway, uh, comment. Let us know what you think. As always, check us out at citizentruth.org. Much love. What's up? What's up? This is Zach Boschman checking in. You are locked into the Citizen Truth podcast. We are honored today to have author of A Lie Too Big to Fail, Lisa Pease, on the podcast. Lisa, let's get right into it. A lot of my audience was born in like the 80s or 90s, and Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated in 1968. So why should we care about this crime today?
1: Wow, that's a great question, and I I laugh because I think of the Bill Hick, Hicks joke. Well, then don't talk to me about Jesus. You know, it's like if history doesn't matter, why do we talk about it at all? And the whole point is history does matter. There's a through line there was a moment in time where our country was really on an upward trajectory. After World War II, things were getting better. People were being taken care of. There wasn't a homeless crisis. There wasn't a mental health crisis. You know, everything was kind of on the upswing in this country, getting more fair, more even, you know, there were bumps and bruises and wars and coups going on, but it wasn't until Robert Kennedy was assassinated that, Everything stopped. All the good progress stopped, and it's been going downhill ever since. And I, I can say that because I've lived through it. And people don't really know what they missed. <laughs> to have a president who said, "We need to really love each other." That was John Kennedy, and and he's like, and I don't mean in a romantic way. I mean like in a love thy neighbor. You know, really take care of each other, and we need world peace. And he meant it. And Robert Kennedy was even more radical, if you will, really wanted to end the war in Vietnam, um, almost, you know, before it even started. I mean, it's like he already knew it was a disaster. And interestingly enough, um, I forget who told me the story or whatever, but uh, Bob... Bob Kennedy and John Kennedy, his brother, had both been in Vietnam in the 50s. And, you know, Vietnam then was our Afghanistan war. It was like this distant war, except that the Vietnam War was televised. I remember seeing pictures of like soldiers you know blood pouring off of them on television news and the thing is of course that ended up provoking a lot of anti-war dissent and today you don't see that because they want you to buy into the wars so they just don't show it on tv and they don't show people with limbs falling off or you know blood pouring down their face or carrying their wounded you know colleague to safety they don't show us the horror of war anymore for that reason but uh anyway both of the caddies had actually been in vietnam when the french were trying to like rule it and they saw how difficult it was and the vietnamese like any country every country the natives are very proud of their own land their own territory their own history and they don't like outsiders coming in and trying to tell them how to run things (laughs) i mean this is true a hundred percent of the time and Uh, so Bob Kennedy, his special gift was not only did he know that, but he was able to communicate it so forcefully. He was absolutely fearless and that's extraordinary given that he was pretty sure the CIA had offed his brother, John. So that's how brave this guy was. And even knowing that he could die any day or be shot at any time, he vigorously campaigned he didn't believe Johnson would pull us out of the Vietnam War and he was right uh he didn't believe that um McCarthy who was also running uh Uh, would pull us out of the war. And he's probably right there too. He saw that guy more as an opportunist who said all the right things, but wouldn't do all the right things. And so he ran out of a sense of obligation because he saw the horror, as his brother said at his funeral, he saw the horror and tried to stop it. And that kind of sums up his life. And like I said, for young people, there's there's no equivalent. You haven't seen anybody like that. I'd say the closest person is perhaps Bernie Sanders, but he's never had the power, so we could see if he would really follow through on what he said. You know, it's uh, he's the only one who kind of espoused it with any level of credibility, meaning having actions behind it. Uh, but Bobby said what he meant and was absolutely going to do it. And of course, one of the reasons he's killed, he was killed is because, one, he would have done exactly what his brother had done and more towards world peace. But two, he was also, as I mentioned, very, very uh, interested in who killed his brother. He had teams of friends looking into different angles. He sent one team to look at the mob and another team to look at the right wing and another team to look at the CIA and the FBI and the whole bit but it's clear from the little bits and threads that have survived that the CIA was always his top suspect. And he actually called the CIA right after he learned that JFK had been shot in Dallas. And he, he said to the startled duty officer, did you guys kill my brother? I mean, that's, that was his first instinct and we should take that very seriously because he was a smart guy who knew how the world worked. Uh,
0: So, So let's get just a little bit of clarification. Um, what what were uh, Bobby's, uh, what was his political career like um, leading up to 68? Um, like, okay. what position did well, he hold in J- with JFK and stuff?
1: Yeah, yeah. He had been um, helping his brother. When his brother was a senator, uh, Bobby was also appointed as a lawyer on the Senate Racketeering Committee to help, kind of being a, one of the staff members attorneys, essentially. And he was a very good uh, researcher, prosecutor, he uncovered all kinds of wrongdoing, way more than people wanted uncovered. Uh, So he, he was always kind of attached to John Kennedy, he ran his campaign. Uh, Interestingly enough, when John Kennedy was elected president, he wanted to put Bobby at CIA or at least after the Bay of Pigs, he wanted to put Bobby at CIA. But the the father and and Bobby both are like, no, that really looks like nepotism. Let's not do that. Even though, you know, under Eisenhower, you had two brothers running everything, you had John Foster Dulles at the State Department running over foreign policy and uh, Alan Dulles at CIA running covert foreign policy. So nepotism was hardly new (laughs) to our system of government. But um, so anyway, after John Kennedy was killed, then Bobby realized he needed to pick up the mantle and not let everything die out. And so he was living in New York. He ran for senator there. And uh, and then he became a very outspoken senator Usually first-term senators are told to kind of shut up and sit in the back and don't cause waves. And within like a month, I mean, he was speaking out. I mean, again, he was fearless and he didn't care what, you know, what you should do. He, he knew what was right according to his own moral compass, and he acted on it.
0: Let's, let's go to the assassination. Um, can we talk a little bit about what the official narrative is? Uh, yes. ease of the assassination and then maybe after that dive into you know some of the most obvious uh problems Sure, evidence <laughs> <laughs> yes
1: uh okay so bobby uh Again, he didn't want to run for president, but when he saw what Johnson was doing escalating the war, he decided he better step into the race. And a couple of primaries had already gone by. uh, So it was a bit of a surprise on the political scene. You know, Bobby had made it clear he kind of wanted to run in 1972, not 68. But he was so worried that Nixon would become president, he felt that was something absolutely worth stopping. And he didn't think LBJ could do it or any of the others. And so he entered the race late, but he started winning some primaries right before the California primary, which was in June. He had actually lost the Oregon primary to Eugene McCarthy, who was again painted as more liberal, but in reality, like I said, not not certain that's the case. Uh, so bobby then comes into california a bit of an underdog for kennedy which was interesting and he campaigned up and down the state and so on and so june 4th was the night of the primary and there was a celebration hopefully victory party right ready ready to be held at the ambassador hotel <coughs> they'd rented out the embassy ballroom which was like the main ballroom in the hotel very nice old style hotel um after About, you know, 11.30 p.m. or so, it became obvious that Bobby was going to win, so he went down to give a speech, you know, very short speech, maybe 10 to 15 minutes or so, right after midnight. Uh, it's about 12, 15 in the morning and he finishes his speech and it's on to Chicago and let's win there, Chicago being the site of the democratic national convention. So that was the next step because California was at the end of the primary cycle. And it, it, he had a very good shot of winning. In fact, the primary, uh, the presidential cycle before would have been 64. And Bobby Kennedy spoke at the Democratic Convention then, and of course his brother had only just been killed the November before, and this was in the summer of 64, and he got a 20-minute standing ovation just for being John Kennedy's brother, basically, and for surviving and for showing up. And so it was very likely that he would have won the nomination. That's key, because some latter-day historians say, oh, he didn't have the delegates, he didn't have a chance that's not true of course he was gonna win uh that support was still there and strong and the love for the kennedys was still very alive at that time uh so anyway he leaves the back of the stage he he goes out the back door of the stage area turns right heads down into a little kitchen serving area that we call the pantry um it's kind of a staging area where people you know doing um serving people would put plates on trays and carry them out to the crowd and things like that. Um, So he's cutting through this narrow area, which is actually packed with about 77 people by the LAPD's count, en route to the print Uh, media because the... Yeah, Yeah, because the television media, you know, had him all night, but he he started as a journalist. That was one of his earliest careers. And so he always had a little bit of sympathy for the print journalists. So he wanted to make sure and stop to the and talk to them as he did at every uh, press at every event. He always stopped and talked to the print media. So it was a fairly safe bet that at some point he would find his way through the pantry there. Uh, Because any other route to that room would have taken him through a bigger crowd. So that was kind of like the smallest possible pathway to get there. Uh, So as he's walking in, people want to shake his hand and congratulate him. And all of a sudden, this guy, Sirhan, steps out in front of him, points a gun straight at him, and starts firing. Kennedy falls down, uh, wounded, you know, bleeding from the head. Uh, Paul Schrade is wounded. Uh, There's literally six people wounded by bullet shots. One of which was Robert Kennedy, but there are five others wounded by bullets who all fell to the ground. You know, the crowd is sobbing and crying and, you know, just pandemonium like you can't believe. And in the, you know, morass, of course, here's a guy with a gun pointing and firing. So, of course, you know, three or four people jumped on him almost immediately. Literally, he got off like two shots before the the big Mater D, who was right next to him, as he was making the shots, he like grabbed his arm, and he pulls the gun away from the crowd, slams him on the kitchen table. Other people wrestled to hold him there, and the guy is still trying to fire. Uh, so it seemed very obvious that Sir Henning killed Robert Kidd. He's standing right there, had a clear shot. And and then but that's where the problem is. He was standing right in front of him with a completely clear shot. If Sirhan were firing bullets, Robert Kennedy would have had a hole in his chest. And he didn't. He was wounded from behind the right ear and under the arm. All right, which is a very interesting place to be shot when you're being shot at from the front. And people will try and excuse that and say, Oh well, Sirhan lunged and no one saw it. Well, that's not true because people saw Sirhan and didn't take their eyes off him and were able to describe his behavior. He stood and fired, made two shots, you know, struggled to get away because the guy, you know, instantly grabbed him but didn't get anywhere. I mean, it's like his feet didn't even move. And so there are other, there are witnesses who saw people running out of the pantry with guns, with guns under like newspapers or paper or a... Uh, uh towels uh various people reported seeing at least two different people running a gun out of the pantry which is pretty interesting if sirhan's the only guy shooting Uh, so there's all kinds of problems with that and like i said so the main thing is first of all you have this distance issue of three credible witnesses who could see both kennedy and sirhan at the moment of the shooting because a lot of people saw one or the other but the three that saw them both said they were about three feet apart and facing each other. And and again, like I said, the autopsy report showed that he was shot at very close range behind the ear, and they know that because there were powder burns, which you only get if the gun is very, very close, like within an inch or so. And similarly, like I said, under his arm, Dwayne Wolfer, the criminalist who lied about a bunch of things, but I don't think about that. He said the The shots under the arm look like they were at a distance of about a quarter of an inch, which he multiplied by three to get to three quarters of an inch. There's no way Sirhan got within three quarters of an inch, you know, got his gun within three quarters of an inch of Kennedy. That's not what the witnesses saw who were watching intently. Um, So, serious problem.
0: The the head shot, right, he had powder burns or, or something, right?
1: Yeah, they they call
0: it stippling, you know. From it's like
1: black soot, essentially. And so N- Thomas Naguchi, the coroner, and Dwayne Wolfer, the criminalist, took pigs ears and they shot them at progressively uh, longer distances until they found the pattern that matched. And according to Thomas Naguchi, it was like between an inch and an inch and a half is about where the gun would have had to have been. And there were a couple of witnesses who saw a gun right up to Kennedy's head at that close range. But none of them could identify Sirhan as the guy holding the gun, which is very interesting.
0: Um, So I think it would be good to go maybe into uh, some of the anomalies. around this case you talk one thing that i found very interesting is you talk about like this 21 year old who was a photographer and uh he's in the in the pantry right and taking Mm -hmm. photos um before during and after the shooting right are you talking about um oh my
1: god and i'm blanking on his name uh the guy who had the lawsuit against uh the lapd (laughs) yeah he got Or are you talking um, about because yeah i don't think he was 21 at that time i think he was closer to 14 or 15 or something he was a kid who was taking photos reason yeah yeah, i i didn't spend a lot of time on that in my book because honestly i don't know what he had and the lapd basically destroyed his evidence when he sued as an adult later to get his negatives back Uh, the archives said, okay, we're going to ferry them down to the courthouse, you know, where you are. And they put them in a car. The guy stopped for gas. When he came back from filling up the gas and I guess going inside to pay, the photos were gone. Mm -hmm. And so somebody literally stole them out of the car, you know, accident, coincidence, conspiracy, you know, I leave that to other people, but uh, Scott, that's the name. Okay. He never got his photos back. Mm -hmm. And, I don't think that's the most important thing because, like I said, I don't know if he caught a shooter or not. But I I will say that the LAP destroyed about 2,000 photos on the case. Now, why that interests me is because there are a couple of hundred photos left, and they show nothing of any significance or importance. They don't even show, like, the pantry, really. I mean so obviously it's like if they were destroying photos of no consequence those photos would be gone too but we have photos of no consequence which makes me believe of course that the photos destroyed had some consequence and probably showed something they weren't supposed to see and one of the things they probably showed um Sirhan was seen right before the shooting. There was a girl in a white dress with dark polka dots. Yeah, she was holding Sirhan on this tray stand. As you walk into the pantry, yeah, I wish I had a picture for you, uh, as Robert Kennedy entered the pantry to his right would have been a little, hmm, I don't want to say, some shelves and then a little bit of wall that jutted out, and behind that jutted out wall was a big ice machine. And uh, at the end of the ice machine, there was a little nook where a tray stacker, you know, sat. And so if somebody was lying in wait and wanting a good view of the room so they could see where and when Robert ketty entered, that's where you would be. So it's significant that this girl is not only on the tray stacker, literally behind Sirhan, holding him there. It's, that's very interesting. And in the course of how do i want to say it I, I don't want to jump ahead so anyway this girl the same exact girl because the description is very unique that she had a funny kind of turned up pug nose uh or skeeve slope bob hope nose as uh two different witnesses said. the one in the pantry saw her and described it with her with sir but sandy serrano was a campaign worker who was sitting out on the backfire escape we had also seen this exact same girl with a funny ski slope pug nose, you know, turned up in the company of Sirhan and one other man who was wearing a gold sweater. And the three of them had walked past her and stepped over her on the fire escape stairs and entered the embassy room kind of through the secret you know fire escape entrance essentially and then shortly after you know kennedy was done speaking she heard what she thought were like six backfires of a car and all of a sudden two of the three come flying back out the back steps and the girl is yelling and giggling we shot him we shot him and sandy said who did you shoot and she said senator kennedy and and ran off into the back uh dark of the back parking lot i've been to the ambassador hotel if you run you know if you had run down those stairs and out into the back you would instantly disappear into the darkness so the girl had every reason to believe she was home free by the time she got to those stairs not knowing of course that sandy would be sitting there uh so anyway Uh, Sandy Serrano then goes and talks uh, to a district attorney about what she had seen. Vince DiPiero talks to the police about what he is seeing. they're put in the witness room. They talk together for less than like less than 15 seconds, according to Vince. When I asked him about that, he's like, because the police tried to say, oh, Vince just said that because he had heard it from Sandy. And then they also said, oh, Sandy just said that because she heard it from Vince. It's like, well, somebody had to have seen a girl, even if the other one picked it up from him. Somebody saw a girl in a polka dot dress with Sirhan. And isn't that interesting? And in my book, I did a lot of research. Um, How do I want to say it? Uh, Because I don't know what your questions are going to be, so I kind of don't want to jump the gun here. Uh, Why don't you ask me some more questions then I can tell the rest of the story.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so um, one thing I remember from the book is you talk about how the LAPD put out like some sort of search for uh the girl in the polka dot dress and the man with the gold sweater right um and the the girl in the polka dot dress is eventually removed right from uh that search and they're just, or was it the, the opposite?
1: Oh, it's it's the opposite, Obviously. the guy in the gold sweater. Yeah, so that's interesting, too. So the police acknowledged that there was such a girl, and they put out an APB for her and the guy in the gold sweater. But within the first 24 hours, for whatever reason, the guy in the gold sweater disappears. and But the girl, there's still an APB out on her for two weeks. So, you know, for the police to say, oh, it's not a conspiracy, there were no other suspects, well, there was clearly a Another suspect. And I even have John Howard in an LA Times article where he said, Yeah, if we'd found the girl, she would have been like a a primary suspect. So here's what happened. So because they only captured Sirhan and they didn't have anybody else. The police decided early on, well, we're going to say it was just one guy. And that's why I call my book A Lie Too Big to Fail, because they knew it was a lie. They knew on day one that there were too many bullets, that there's no way one gun could have made all the, you know, wounds. I mean, even by the LAPD's own official bullet count... There are 12 points of entry that are assigned to eight bullets. (laughs) So that's a problem right off the bat because some people were wounded twice. So they're like, oh, this bullet like hopped through this guy's pants and bounced on the floor and up into this woman's head. You know, they they made these crazy scenarios to get it keep it down to eight bullets Uh, when clearly there were more. The FBI went in and photographed the scene and one of their agents even examined it and put his finger in it and said, there's a bullet still in the hole here. And there were pictures that were labeled and captioned by the FBI bullet holes, not possible or probable or strange holes or whatever. And not only that, those holes had been circled and labeled by the sheriffs who beat the LAPD to the scene because they happened to be next door where the votes were being counted. It was the first time we'd ever had electronic voting in America. You know, IBM computer, a big system with punch cards, was literally across the street from the Ambassador Hotel counting the votes. And that's where the sheriffs were stationed so no one could come in and alter the election. And uh, so they ran right over. And um, so there's just so much evidence that there were at least 13 bullets in the pantry, at least. There's even an audio tape that captured the shots. And after 13 shots, it's just too noisy to determine if there were even more than 13 shots. And in my research, it sure looks like there were more than 13. Uh, But... All it takes is one, if there's even one bullet hole in the pantry. All right, it's a conspiracy. And so it's funny, somebody who read my book recently is like, why do they call this conspiracy theory? This is obviously conspiracy fact. And that's true. It is obvious to those of us who've actually taken the time to look. It's not obvious if you only listen to the mainstream media and do you know how the media reports on things? They go to a computer and they search their computer database of past articles and past reporting, and they just repeat stuff. The media does not investigate, all right, in general. It's very rare that you see a true investigative report on any of these cases. And uh, and so the, the lie that Sirhan alone had killed Kennedy was repeated over and over, and the trial was such a show trial set up to dispel any sense of conspiracy very deliberately with the participation of Sir Ian's defense team, because they felt too, They they knew it was a conspiracy, but they're like, how can we get our guy off by saying, well, he had co-conspirators that got away. You know, then it sounds like he's the more guilty, right? It was a big plot and he was definitely a part of it. And so they opted for a completely crazy scenario where some type, you know, where he supposedly hypnotized himself by looking in mirrors and, and, you know, and shot him in this wild hypnotized state. Well, the funny thing was he was in a hypnotized state, but he didn't hypnotize himself, and that's the key thing. And this is, again, something so far from most people's experience. That's why it's kind of genius for a plan because it's so easy to ridicule. But you have to know like how hypnosis works. And I, when I was writing that chapter especially, I, I really went to every like hypnosis show I could find and talked to hypnotists and interviewed people. And in one show, I got lucky because I saw a woman before she went on stage and then after she went on stage. So I saw her before she was hypnotized. I saw her hypnotized during the show, and then I saw her after, and let me tell you, that was the freakiest thing ever. All right, so I'm sitting next to this woman. I'm talking to her. She's as normal as any next-door neighbor type, you know, just nice, chatty woman, uh, very intelligent, you know, no, no weird mental issues or anything. She goes up on stage. She's hypnotized into believing she was given, and, you know, you could even from the this, this audience, you could tell it was like Monopoly play money. All right, so the show ends, Zero Hypnotist dismisses everybody. I've unhypnotized you all. Go home. I went to talk to the hypnotist because I wanted to ask you about Sir Ann, and he literally got visibly uncomfortable and immediately left the area. Too young to have involved so i know there was no guilt there it was just something he definitely didn't want to talk about which was interesting to me but as as the crowd then parted i noticed this woman again and she looked very distressed and i thought maybe she'd gotten separated from her family and i like to help people so i went up to her it's like hey you know is something wrong can i help and she's like well i have to give this back and i'm like well it's just play money i don't think he cares and she goes no it's a thirty-five thousand dollar check This woman did not look hypnotized. If you met her or talked to her, you would not know. If you hadn't seen that show, you would have no idea she was hypnotized. She was as normal as I had seen her before the show. But in her mind, she was seeing something that literally was not there. And she was absolutely convinced of this other reality. And that was the first time I thought, this is what happened to Sirhan. Somebody got him to see something else. Because when you read his history... He's not a violent person. He's not a political activist, although yeah, they the, very
0: much tried to paint Ukrainian him that is, way. Uh, the first yeah. Palestinian terrorist or something, right? Oh, Mel Eighton is, yeah, a bunch of...
1: <laughs> that That book is like a laugh and a half, but it is not history, and it's not accurate on so many levels. In fact, he tries to discredit Sandy Serrano in that book, The Forgotten Terrorist, but... Uh, with a woman on the other side of the hotel. He didn't even do his research. He doesn't even know which side that woman was on. So he's like, this other woman saw somebody and that's not what she heard somebody say. You know, they That woman said they shot Candy. I'm like, yeah, on that side of the hotel, that's what happened, but not where Sandy was on the opposite side of the hotel. Totally different story. And uh, there were witnesses, there was one really good witness who heard the girl run by and say to Sandy, uh, we shot him. So anyway. Uh, But I wondered, like, what was Sirhan seeing? And I didn't get in touch with Munir until I was almost, Munir is Sirhan's younger brother, Munir Sirhan. And he lives in Pasadena, you know, here in L.A. And I I really wanted to talk to him, but not until I was done with my book. Now I see that was a mistake because he had all kinds of good info. I wish I had known at the time that I would have folded into my book. But I didn't want to appear prejudiced. I really wanted to make up my own mind. I didn't want any sympathy for the family or a brother to have any play in that. But afterwards, when I talked to him, one day he called me. He's like, Lisa, is it possible there were, like, round targets painted in the pantry? And I'm like... Why do you ask? And he didn't tell me at the time, but then later I found Dan Brown is one of the best hypnotists in the country. He's written several textbooks on it, testified in a ton of trials. And Sirhan's then attorney, William Pepper, um, got Dan Brown 60 hours over a two year period with Sirhan. Because Sirhan had been hypnotized by his own defense team initially, because here was the problem, Sirhan is caught firing a gun and he literally doesn't remember what happened. And the police, as they talk to him, not only does he not remember what happened, he doesn't remember if he's married or not. He doesn't remember what car he drove. He doesn't even remember his name. All right, this is how out of it he was. And even the DA noticed it. One of the DA you know, assistants, it was Howard actually, when he talked to him, he suddenly switches gears like, do you know where you are? Do you know what's being discussed you know that you're in the jail and and so he was kind of like so long as you say it it's like he was so out of it and now like i said having seen that woman after the show it's clear he was still in the hypnotic state and didn't know he was had been hypnotized and that's why he couldn't remember anything and to this day In when he's not hypnotized, he does not remember what happened. And so Dan Brown was brought in because his original defense team, when they hypnotized him, they did it like this. Sirhan, there's Kennedy. Reach for your gun, Sirhan. Do you remember that? I mean, it's like they were trying to implant a memory and they were assuming things that weren't in Sirhan's memory. And so he couldn't respond because they weren't asking him open-ended questions. So Dan Brown did it very differently. What do you see? What do you hear? Who's there? Who's next to you? You know, is there anyone around? And through that kind of question over 60 hours, he elicited that Sirhan was, you know, sexually attracted to this girl in a polka dot dress and followed her around like a puppy. He thought he was going to get lucky that night. Uh, you know, he said she got this, you know, unspoken avail- unavailability that was, you know, very alluring to him. And uh, at one point, when they were, you know, af- after they'd been on the trace tracker, she walked him to the center of the room and pinched him in a certain way. And he's like, suddenly, I thought I was back at the range. And he had been at a shooting range all that day and several days prior. And so that obviously was part of his hypnotic training. So suddenly in his mind, he's seen big round targets ahead and he pulls out his gun and he's firing right at the targets. To the rest of the world, it looks like he's firing at Robert Kennedy and trying to kill him. But in his mind, that has nothing to do with it. He's not in the pantry, he's back at the target range. And so it's been very hard over the years because people don't understand the case. And his lawyers, even when they do understand the case, they have to tell them like, well, you know, you can't say that, no one will believe you, even though it is the truth. That's that's the hardest part. It's like, how do you apologize for a crime you truly don't remember committing that you wouldn't have committed if you had a conscious understanding of what you were doing? And in my book, I make it very clear that Sirhan was not even firing bullets. He was firing blanks. And this makes sense on so many levels, because like I said, first of all, he had a b- wide open shot of Robert Kennedy, his first shot by by rights. If he had a bullet in there, his first shot would have hit him in the chest. He was right in front of him with a clear open shot. No one between them. All right. Uh, people holding him down as he's firing, even with their fingers right near the gun. None of them got the least bit nicked. You know, people saw a visible flame coming out of the gun. You don't see that when you fire bullets, but you do see that when you fire blanks. And uh, the fact that no one, how do I want to say, there was a guy with a gun seen right next to Sirhan, who was firing bullets down into the crowd, because obviously the conspirators would have thought this through. It's like, well, we, we want him to fire blanks because he's hypnotized. We don't know what he's really gonna see or do. We don't want him to kill our actual assassin before he gets the job done. And so uh, there was a guy next to him because it has to look like Sir Anna's firing bullets, right? But that person has to be careful not to kill the assassins. So the shooter on the table, and there are four credible witnesses to that. this person, that there was a shooter on the table. And again, the other guns to the pantry were covered. They were hidden slightly, but people kind of, they could tell, you know, you get the impression he's firing down into the crowd, even though they couldn't quite see or describe the gun, but something was happening there. And the same with people who saw a gun to Kelly's head. One of them's like, I didn't even see a gun, but I just had this distinct impression he just shot him in the head. And there are guns you can conceal in the palm of your hand that you can fire by moving your ring finger or your middle finger. There are plunger guns where you just, you know, Push almost like punching somebody in the head, and that releases the bullet. There's all kinds of ways to kill somebody. There are cigarette lighters that are really bullet, that are really guns. Go to the CIA museum and look at some of the devices and the gadgets. So people are like, "Oh, they didn't see other guns." Well, they kind of did. And like I said, there were guns, literally guns, gun muzzles, like seen being run out of the pantry afterwards, immediately afterwards, so fast. Because here's the other thing: the shooting happened so fast. By the time people realized what was happening, it was over. It's like the shooting just boom, 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 you know, it's like if you have three or four people and they're all firing at once, you can do a lot of damage in less than a second, right? And suddenly, these people are gone before people even realize. Because almost every witness, when they heard first, because Sirhan went first, and they're like, "It sounds like a cap gun." You know, it sound, And Rayford Johnson, who was an Olympic decathlon champion, said it looked like a starter pistol throwing off residue. because <laughs> you know, a cap gun has a little shower of paper residue, a little ash. You know, of the paper burning as it comes out of the gun. So all the evidence points to um, firing blanks, but the best evidence is that not one of the bullets in the pantry could ever be matched back to Sir Han's gun. Wow. And when a panel reinvestigated just the ballistics evidence, they were given a very narrow focus um, to try and match the bullets up because a criminalist from Pasadena, not from Los Angeles, had looked at the bullets in evidence and said these came from two different guns. He didn't try and match it to Sirhan's gun, he just said it's clear looking at them that these bullets indicated at least two different guns were used. And so in 1975, CBS, Paul Schrade and a bunch of others filed suit to get a panel of experts together. I say experts because almost all of them were tied in some way to some deception in some other case. And I really didn't even have time to go into that in the book. But one of them was Cortland Cunningham, who had been testifying to the Warren Commission about the JFK case and and covered up the fact that Oswald didn't fire a gun that day. So it's like that panel was not credible anyway. But what they found was that all the bullets matched each other, but none of the bullets matched Sir Hans gun. And we also know from the police evidence that the Kennedy neck bullet should have had the marking TN31 on the base. And the base is like the size of a number two pencil, very small. All right, but the panel bullet that was supposed to be the same bullet was marked DWTN, Dwayne Wolfer, Thomas Noguchi, because Dwayne Wolfer, didn't know how Thomas Noguchi normally marked his bullets. Didn't care. Probably didn't think anybody would ever pay that close attention. All right. They literally switched out the bullets to prove that at least only one gun had been fired. So they basically took in a new gun, dummied up three bullets, made it look like they were from the crime scene, scratched some markings on some of them. They didn't even mark one of them, which should have had X on the base and had nothing on it. Uh... So these were not the same bullets. And none of that would be necessary if Sir had actually fired any of the bullets. Because Dwayne Wolfer had saved some of the extra test bullets. He had turned, he'd fired like seven test bullets, turned three into the grand jury, uh, kept four for himself, which he could have used to dummy up other victim bullets. But the problem is he probably started doing that, you know, and then realized, wait a minute, you know, none of these even match. (laughs) So it's like it matched Sirhan's gun. He literally on June sixth, which was the day that the neck bullet was removed, that was the day Robert Kennedy died. So the fourth was the primary shortly after midnight on the fifth, he was shot. And then the morning of the sixth, Robert Kennedy died and the autopsy began. The bullet was removed and given to the LAPD at about nine that morning. All right. That night, there's like this five-hour gap in his schedule, and then he works till 1 a.m. in the morning because he knew, he knew by looking at it that they had a conspiracy and that these bullets obviously didn't match their hands gun. In fact, it must have been so obvious because he didn't even... He didn't even record a testing of Sirhan's gun. It's like he must have been able to tell by just glancing they weren't the same. And when he put the Kennedy and the Goldstein bullet together, another victim bullet, it's clear that he realized there was a problem. So that night, evidently, he goes out, dummies up some bullets, comes back to the lab and makes a little photo micrograph comparison. And they, in their files, they acknowledge there's kind of a, a deception in that photo. And they save it for the 1975 panel. And the panel by now has heard that there is this weirdness about it. And so they think they find the deception because uh, Wolfer said, This is a comparison of a Sirhan bullet and the Kennedy bullet. And they said, No, it's the Goldstein and the Kennedy bullet. So it's two victims, but it's not Sirhan's gun. And instead the problem was it wasn't even the gold sea bullet it wasn't even the Kennedy bullet they were all fake bullets i mean the taxpayer money that was spent on this completely ridiculous exercise should incite every citizen you know this kind of stuff should not be allowed to happen and that's that's why i wrote the book because other authors had covered a lot of different aspects of the case, and I kept waiting for somebody to, like, actually deal seriously with the ballistics evidence because, to me, that was key. And it was key in proving that Sir Ham didn't even fire any of the bullets. So how could he possibly be guilty of killing Ketty? Yes, he could be labeled a co-conspirator, but if he's under hypnosis, how witting a conspirator is he? And I mentioned in my book I talk about a plot to kill Uh, Kim Jong-nam, the half-brother of Kim Jong-un in Korea, who, by the way, would have been next in line. And these two women did a stunt at the airport. One sprayed water on people, the other would towel them off. And they would film it for TV and ha ha ha, isn't this funny? Well, when they got to Kim Jong-nam and he was pointed out as the target, one sprayed water, one wiped him off, and the guy died a couple hours later because it turned out the towel had VX nerve agent put in there. And did the women know? Or were they tricked into assassinating somebody without their knowledge? Because that's really what I argue happened to Sirhan. He was literally tricked into being part of the plot, but not even the assassination, not even the assassin. He was tricked into being a patsy in a plot. And so my heart really goes out to Sirhan. And I dedicated my book to both Robert Kennedy Jr and Munir Sirhan, and I said both of whom need to know what happened to their loved ones that day. Uh, because I feel Sirhan was a victim too, and Robert Kennedy Jr., to his great credit, is the only one in his family who's actually looked into the evidence. He's come to the same conclusion that Sirhan did not kill his father. He went to see him in jail and told him that. I called him after, as he's driving back. I'm like, "What'd you think?" And he goes, "He's a sweet man. He's like, he didn't kill anybody. He he, he knows." And believe me, Bobby is a good judge of character because people have thrown themselves at him over the years, and yeah. he's seen every possible type of person. He definitely can tell, you know, who's that a good person a lot and who's that not.
0: Bobby Kenny Jr. doesn't think that Sirhan did it right i, and, like and, I, I saw yeah. something with maybe his sister or um, kathleen
1: kennedy yeah. yeah kathleen said she thought bobby's evidence was persuasive and would like to see a new investigation kathleen did not sign the letter that six other members of the family signed saying don't give sir ham because he was recently granted parole by the parole board due to a couple of big changes one is that the DA uh, in Los Angeles, uh, Gascon, is no longer sending people, no longer allowing prosecutors to go to parole hearings because he's like, the parole, the prosecution happens in the courtroom. It shouldn't continue to happen at every parole hearing, and he's right about that. And you have to allow people the chance to change and grow and evolve, and and I mean that's <laughs> what being human's all about, right? Uh, and then there was a new law in California that also said you have to take um, their youth into account. So if they were 24 or younger and they've been in jail like 50 years, they're, they're prioritized for parole. So everything in the law pointed to Saran, Saran, Saran being given parole, and he was. Uh, now, however, I'm very worried that the governor, Gavin Newsom, will veto the parole because he can... And he is a huge fan of Robert Kennedy, but I bet you, like so many fans of Robert Kennedy, he's never picked up a single book about his actual assassination. First of all, there aren't that many. They're not easy to find. Uh, mine's actually in Barnes & Noble and on the bookshelves. I'm very happy about that. I, I fought to get it a hardcover because originally the publisher was like, let's do this in paperback. And I'm like, no. No, it just won't have the same credibility. It's got to be hardback. And, and after he read it, he agreed. Yeah. (laughs) So he's like, this needs to be hardback. uh, So it can go into libraries and be part of the permanent record, if you will. Uh, So anyway, I'm sending Gavin Newsom a copy of my book. I don't think he'll read it. But even if he just flips a few pages, there's like data on every page that will shock and amaze. And if he even reads a few pages, he might go, oh my gosh, Maybe I should let him be paroled because he should. Sirhan really didn't do it. He's he's paid fifty years of his life. He's been in jail twice as long as he's, you know, been free. I mean, you know, he was jailed at age twenty four. He's now like seventy seven. I mean, this is incredible for crime. He was tricked into being a part of without his knowledge through hypnosis and also possibly drugs, as I mentioned
0: in the book. Lisa, thank you so much uh, for talking to us today. Everybody go pick up the book, A Lie Too Big to Fail. It's very good. Thank you so much. I hope we can uh, chat. Thank you. And then write
1: the governor and tell him don't veto the parole. Thank you. (laughs)
0: What's up, everybody? Zach Boschman here, co-owner of Citizen Truth. The intro and outro songs are Brighton Ave by Audio Binger, and they're provided via the Creative Commons license. Please check us out at citizentruth.org. Thank you.